Welcome to the History in My History, brought to you by SAESE, Scott's American Experience Social Experiment, where we learn history today to create better citizens tomorrow. Hello everyone, this is Rachel coming to you from small Mount Pleasant, Utah in the U.S. of A. We all have favorite childhood memories. One of mine was story time. It was a common occurrence in our home to fill a big bowl with popcorn and with our blankets and pillows gather on the floor around a candle. There, Mom would fill our minds with the wonders of the written word, poetry, Robert Frost's The Road Not Taken, Try, Try Again, My Friend the Monster, Edgar Guest's Ma and the Checkbook, History, Stories of the American Revolution, Benjamin Franklin, Paul Revere, George Washington, and the Army of Two. Today, I would like to share parts of one of my particular favorites, The Bulletproof George Washington by David Barton. This is the story of 23-year-old Colonel Washington during the battle at the Monongahela in the French and Indian War. Young Washington had already proven himself trustworthy and capable in previous missions and earned honors and the praise of the public. Because of these favorable reports, British General Braddock invited Washington to join him as an aide in his campaign to repel the French from Fort Duquesne and drive them out of the Ohio Valley. Despite obstacles in getting underway, they finally left with nearly 2,000 men, most of whom were British veterans. The going was rough as their path was through untamed wilderness. They had to clear the way to make roads and bridges for the bulk of their army to pass. Because of these delays, General Braddock was concerned the French had time to become fully entrenched. So on Washington's recommendation, he left 600 men to watch over the excess heavy baggage and continued on at a faster pace with 1,300 select men. Along the way, Washington was overcome with a life-threatening high fever that alarmed the physician. Braddock ordered Washington to drop out of the march until he recovered. Though not fully recovered, after two weeks he slowly and painfully made his way forward. Though Braddock was an experienced general, his experience in European warfare had in no way prepared him for the forced fighting style of the American Indian, and in this instance, his experience was his downfall. He knew best how to deal with the coming conflict, and based on his experience and certainty, said that Fort Duquesne can hardly detain me above three or four days. And when warned by Benjamin Franklin about the Indian fighting style, Braddock smiled at his ignorance and replied, These savages may indeed be a formidable enemy to your raw American militia, but upon the king's regular and disciplined troops, sir, it is impossible they should make any impression.
Braddock's experience, or lack, is demonstrated as he scorns and firmly refuses Shawnee and Delaware twice-offered assistance. Washington knew the value of having these men as scouts and urged Braddock to accept both times. But Braddock was enraged at being advised by an inferior. He was fully confident in the courage of his own troops and disdainful of the ability of the natives to offer any meaningful aid. He would soon gain meaningful experience in what that aid might have been worth. Due to the greater English numbers, the French, unwilling to give up Fort Duquesne, decided that an ambush would be their most effective defense. 855 men, a combined force of French regulars, Canadian militiamen, and Indians set out for just that purpose. July 9, 1755. With Braddock's army spread 40 miles long, his forward detachment of 350 soldiers and 250 workers while working on the road were attacked. Out of nowhere, volley after volley of musket fire rained down on the unprepared British. Though they returned fire, there was no visible foe to target. The Indians' aim was unerring and deadly. Faced with an enemy they could neither fight nor defend against, panic quickly filled the ranks and they fled. Braddock, hearing the musket fire and knowing his forward detachment was seriously engaged, rapidly moved the main column up to engage the enemy. The retreating men met the advancing men, and the ensuing confusion was devastating. Never before had the British regulars been faced with this faceless warfare. Panic-stricken, uncertain where to go or what to do, they did nothing. Standing still, huddled together in bunches, they randomly fired into the surrounding forest. While the French forces fired at large groups out in the open that were painted bright red, they couldn't miss. The hundred or so Virginia provincials, however, were familiar with this type of fight. They found cover and shot hands, arms, legs, shoulders, anything that was presented. This skulking mode of battle infuriated Braddock as it went against all his ideals of war, honor, courage, and discipline. He ordered his men out from behind their cover, once again exhibiting his experience. Regardless of his experience or lack of, Braddock was no coward. He attempted to rally and organize his troops and fought like a lion, Undaunted by five horses shot out from under him, he showed a reckless courage against the enemy, to no avail. At this point, Washington was the only aide left uninjured to carry the general's orders to the subordinates in all parts of the field. This made him a conspicuous target for the enemy, and though he was still weak and not completely recovered from his illness, he was steadfast and unflinching to his duty through the chaos and disaster. One who watched Washington during the battle reported, I expected every moment to see him fall. Nothing but the superintending care of Providence could have saved him. For two hours, the one-sided slaughter, not battle, lasted during which every officer except Washington was killed or wounded, as the Indians paid particular attention to removing the leaders. 
When Braddock was shot in the right side, the regulars broke and ran. It became a rout, every man for himself, leaving everything behind, including the wounded. Washington and the Virginian provincials, whom Braddock, in his contempt, had kept in the rear, covered the panicked flight of the regulars, enabling them to retreat. In a letter to his mother, Washington recalled, Our force consisted of about 1,300 well-armed troops, chiefly regular soldiers, who were struck with such a panic that they behaved with more cowardice than it is possible to conceive. In short, the dastardly behavior of those they call regulars exposed all others that were inclined to do their duty to almost certain death. And at last, in spite of all the efforts of the officers to the contrary, they broke and ran as sheep before hounds, leaving the artillery, ammunition, provisions, baggage, and in short everything a prey to the enemy. And when we endeavored to rally them, it was with as little success as if we had attempted to stop the wild bears of the mountains or the rivulets with our feet. One, Captain Orm, who was one of the general's aide-de-camps, and being grievously wounded, was brought off with Braddock and continued with him to his death, which happened in a few days, reported, Braddock was totally silent all the first day, and at night only said, Who would have thought it? That he was silent again the following day, and only said at last, We shall better know how to deal with them another time, and died a few minutes later. The brutality of the battle was indicated by the number of casualties. 714 of the soldiers had been killed or wounded, and of 86 officers, 26 were killed and 37 more were wounded. Out of three Virginian companies that there were, scarcely 30 men were left alive. The losses of the French and Indians were slight, amounting to only three officers and 30 men killed, and as many others wounded. On July 17th, Washington and the disconsolate army reached Fort Cumberland. There he wrote a letter to his brother, saying, As I have heard since my arrival at this place, Fort Cumberland, a circumstantial account of my death and dying speech, I take this early opportunity of contradicting the first and assuring you that I have not as yet composed the latter. But, by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation, for I had four bullets through my coat, and two horses shot under me, yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. Being the only aide left to carry the general's orders, Washington was a conspicuous mark to the enemy, who did not fail to take advantage of it. Following the battle, the Indians testified that they had specifically singled him out and repeatedly shot at him, but without effect. They became convinced that he was protected by an invisible power and that no bullet could harm him. Shielded by God's hand, he was untouched by bullet or bayonet, arrow or tomahawk, even though scores of victims fell beside him. One famous Indian warrior who was a leader in the battle was often heard to testify publicly, Washington was never born to be killed by a bullet. I had 17 fair fires at him with my rifle, 
and after all could not bring him to the ground. Frenchmen told Mary Draper Ingalls about an Indian chief named Red Hawk who had been in the victory at Duquesne. Red Hawk told of personally shooting 11 different times at Washington without killing him. At that point, because his gun had never missed its mark before, he ceased firing at him, being convinced that the Great Spirit protected Washington. Fifteen years after the battle, Washington met a company of Indians led by an old respected chief. The chief addressed Washington through an interpreter, saying, I am a chief and ruler over my tribes. My influence extends to the waters of the Great Lakes and to the far blue mountains. I have traveled a long and weary path that I might see the young warrior of the great battle. It was on the day when the white man's blood mixed with the streams of our forest that I first beheld this chief, Washington. I called to my young men and said, Mark yon tall and daring warrior. He is not of the red coat tribe. He hath an Indian's wisdom, and his warriors fight as we do, himself is alone exposed. Quick, let your aim be certain, and he dies. Our rifles were leveled, rifles which, but for you, knew not how to miss. Twas all in vain. A power mightier far than we shielded you. Seeing you were under the special guardianship of the Great Spirit, we immediately ceased to fire at you. I am old, and soon shall be gathered to the great council fire of my fathers in the land of shades. But ere I go, there is something bids me to speak in the voice of prophecy. Listen. The great spirit protects that man, pointing at Washington, and guides his destinies. He will become the chief of nations, and a people yet unborn will hail him as the founder of a mighty empire. I am come to pay homage to the man who is the particular favorite of heaven and who can never die in battle. Now, I leave it to you, God providence, or luck. I know what I think. Thank you for joining me in History in My History. Join me next time for A Heap of Livin' by Edgar A. Guest. <laughs>